Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let's just get into it, man. I mean, I'm really excited to have you. Um, this welcome to Conspiracy Normal, guys. You know, as always, yeah. It's Adam Serfiel is here, yeah, and I'm excited about this this guest that we got coming on, um, Jake I we, Richards. I think we've already started. Yeah, we've already started. Um, I'm, okay. I'm pretty amazed. Uh, he wrote a book called Backwoods Witchcraft, and. To be honest, man, I've been getting into a lot of this lately. Just recently, I met, I don't know if you're familiar with him, Jack Montgomery. He lives up in Bowling Green, Kentucky. And he is, uh, he wrote a book called American Shamans about like um, powwow. And he's mostly steeped in the powwow tradition from like South Carolina. And this is something okay. that I've been getting into a lot because of our good friend, Timothy Renner. Mm-hmm who we've talked to a lot up in Pennsylvania and he's talked about powwow on the show. And I've had a couple other people that have come on Ren Collier and, uh, he suggested, and also a good friend of mine named Heather. She, she suggested you as well. So I was like, well, I got to get this guy on. So welcome to conspiracy normal, Jake. Thank you for having me. Yeah, man. Um, it's great to have you. Uh, you know, one of the things I always ask every guest is how you got into this, but with you, it's almost kind of like 
you've always been into this. Like this is really you've you've grown up in this essentially. So let's kind of just talk about yeah. that your journey into rediscovering this the backwoods magic. And you know, this is personal, I think, for us too, being Tennesseans. I mean, we're not that far away from you. And I'm like I said, yeah. I'm from East Tennessee originally. Yeah, growing up it was I mean, there wasn't really I never really put a question to it, so I kind of just always assumed that, you know, other people put, you know, baby powder on the doorsteps or, you know, like Nana, you know, prayed with her eyes open, Um, except uh, when I was really, you know, real young, uh, Mama had, you know, explained a lot of it to me, so she just told me, you know, the baby powder kept bugs away or, you know, anything like that, except as as I got older, I noticed that I kept seeing bugs in the house, like spiders, you know, ants you know, the regular things and everybody else that I've ever met, you know, prayed with their eyes closed. So that's when I started, you know, questioning it a little bit more. Um, and I had always known that, you know, Papal could, you know, stop blood with a Bible verse as he healed either sixteen six or 616. I get it mixed up. Um, he could take fever out with an egg. He could buy off warts. And I just, you know, thought that was, you know, normal stuff. Um, but as I started, you know, studying it, you know, into it more, uh, starting basically with like other cultures, like in Europe and places like that. Um, I started seeing a lot of similarities. So then that's kind of what led me down the rabbit hole into, you know, bringing it home. So you began to kind of practice all this, this kind of, I guess, lack of a better word, this, this backwoods witchcraft. Yeah, essentially it, it mean, you know, I mainly, uh, was, you know, just studying it or whatever. But then I actually took up the practice after my grandfather passed away. Okay. Because he was essentially, you know, one of the last ones in the family. Um, and then it kind of pushed me further when, you know, my other elders started passing away and, or, you know, simply forgetting like my grandmother with dementia. Um, mm-hmm. So I just, you know, essentially wanted to preserve it because as much, as much as it's, you know, other people's stories, it's, you know, first and foremost my story to me sure so let's talk about just like what is what is that like to be someone that does this i mean do you get people that come to you a lot now and i mean is it is it kind of like you're for lack of a better word kind of like a shaman of the community um well i think it's a little bit more than that um because with this work you're, you're a lot of things to a lot of people sure um in some aspects, you know, you're, you're a neighbor, you're a friend, you're a relative. Uh, some a- other aspects, you're a priest or a counselor or, you know, in, you know any of the above. Um, since the books come out, I haven't really, you know, seen a change in, like, people coming to me or anything like that. So it, it's kind of been, you know, business as usual. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, essentially... Um, it, it simply depends on exactly what the person's needing, uh, you know, whether they're needing guidance, help, you know, anything like that. Mm-hmm. Then it, I don't know, it just like comes naturally with the work, with the work, I guess. So what would be a good example if someone comes to you? Like what's kind of a personal story that you can kind of tell somebody comes to you with a need and then you do some kind of working and then what could, what is the result of that? Um, well, uh, you know, there, there was this one woman, uh, 
she came to me. She had, she's actually been a client of mine for a couple of years and she came to me for, uh, an egg, well, an egg cleansing as well as a few other readings and, you know, just to identify exactly what her problem was. Um, because she had had a bad breakup with an ex of like, I think it was like four or six years. And then ever since then, her, you know, luck and love has been, you know, down in the dirt. And then soon after that, it started spreading to uh, other aspects of her life, um, like her job, her finances, her family, her friends. And she just became, you know, real reclusive to herself. Mm. So I, you know, did readings with the cards, um, kind of the seeds, did uh, a tea leaf reading for her, and all of them basically point to the same thing, that it was, uh, you know, the, what most, most people call the evil eye, uh, resulting from an ex-lover. Um, so we did, uh, you know, some cleansing, some purifying, and then after that, her, her life's been, you know, just great. Because as soon as she walked in, you know, she was, she, she was just down. I mean, she was just, you know, exhausted, tired. Um, but ever since then, she's she's done nothing but grow. Um, so it's it's really good to see, you know, that 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 change actually take effect in someone's life. Um, and like my grandmother always taught me, the person has to have faith, um, because uh, just like uh, in the Bible, when Jesus healed the blind man. He, he asked the blind man, do you believe that I can do this? And the blind man said, yay, Lord, I do. And then Jesus said uh, something along the lines of, then, then may you, then so shall you be healed according unto you, or, you know, something of that nature. Basically saying by your degree of belief or your degree of faith, that is the same degree you will be healed. Um, so d- doing this work, it, there's a lot of interplay in the you know, the actual essence of humanity, because although times have changed, the, the people haven't. You know, we still need money. We still need to, sur- need to survive. We still need companion- companionship. Um, you know, we still need protection from evil spirits, enemies, anything of that sort. Right. So this lady, she had just like a visible change in her life. So she went through this ritual, and then she was able to kind of cleanse this out of her life, and then all of a sudden she was able to move on. Exactly. And when you say cards, you're not actually talking about tarot cards. As I understand it, these are normal playing cards. Yeah, I read with playing cards like my mother taught me. Yeah, that's fascinating. I I had no idea that that was even a thing when you wrote that in the book. What's some of the rules of that, of of using the cards? Like just like, and all this stuff that you list in this book, it's it's interesting to me because there's so many rules, and you have to do this thing at this particular amount of time in this particular way. It's just fascinating all these these interesting aspects of this. But you know, what's some of the rules about the playing cards? Like, because there's some really specific things that you have to do <laughs> with these cards. Um, well, there there's specific things that my that my mother taught me. Um, is I, I never you know play you know, normal games with the, the deck that I read with. And I never read with a deck of cards that has been used in games. I keep those, you know, separated. Um, and anytime that I, uh, you know, go to read cards for a stranger, I have to use a separate deck than the one that I use for, you know, friends or family. Because um, especially with strangers, you don't know, you know, what they're, 
basically carrying around with them in their life. So you don't want that, uh, you know, basically hopping over onto you. Um, so, so that's why I keep, you know, that deck separate from those of friends and relatives. Um, and my, my mother taught me to not necessarily read the cards in a linear order. Um, more so, uh, she taught me to pay attention to the cards that popped in my, you know, popped in my eyesight first. Uh, so, you know, I could pull a couple of pairs, like an aces, a sevens, a jacks. Um, but the, the most prominent would be the one that, you know, spirit makes pop first. Um, so, you know, whether it's a, the, like two queens identifying a woman or, you know, uh, a pair of twos, like the two of clubs and the two of spades that would, you know, represent some sort of... Uh, you know, transaction or meeting gone wrong, depending on, you know, which card's on top, of course. Um, so it, it's, it's really complicated to put in the words. Um, yeah, you do a whole list in the book of what each card means and and what it is. It's interesting to me how there is that kind of parallel with the with the tarot. I mean, tarot have, you know, was, of course, used as a game at, at one point, too. Yeah, well, at, at the time, you know, playing cards were, you know, all that the majority of people had. Yeah, and there's there there were tons of you know old books that were sold in like pharmacies and you know the backs of different trade shops um, that told you how to you know interpret your dreams or read playing cards or you know anything of that sort. Especially like the like the dream number lottery number books or something like that, which tells you how to win the lottery based on what numbers you see in your dream. Yeah. So mostly they they were marketed in spoke most to, you know, the the poorest communities, those who didn't really have much to do with and kind of gave them uh, essentially like a leverage mm -hmm. um, in life. Let's talk a little bit about, because you do a good job, I think, in this in the book, about the natural environment and how that kind of affects the folklore and kind of the magical workings that you do there in Appalachia. Oh, yeah, definitely, because, uh, you know, in southern Appalachia, we've the you know the region's always had a particular i wouldn't say affinity or anything like that more more so like a working relationship with nature um and, and I originally thought about that uh when I was driving over the mountains one day, I think we were going to Irwin or Unicoi or somewhere like that, but to me it's like the the mountain roads are like a symbol of the, the mountaineers' relationship with, you know, the the region in Appalachia. Because while the mountain itself cannot be tamed, you know, man still cannot be stopped from crossing the mountains. Yeah. So it's like man cannot tame the mountain, but the mountain cannot tame the mountaineer either. So it's kind of like a balanced working relationship. Um, and now in regards to, uh, you know, actual practice, there were a lot of things, uh, you know, animal, insect, or otherwise that were used in some works, uh, like, uh, what are they called? Most people know them as like the little roly poly bugs or yeah. beetle bugs. Right, yeah. right. Uh, some people would uh, hang their colic. Uh, they had to be alive, and then as they died in the, you know, the little pouch, they would essentially take the colic away with them. Or as the seal bug died, so did the colic die off. Hmm. And then, 
a, a lot of things are, you know, now endangered, just like the hellbender salamander, because that was often used in, you know, certain works, especially cursing works, where, you know, it called for uh, powdered puppies, is what they call them, or mud puppies. Um, but those are, you know, now endangered and extremely rare. Um, they used minnows, trout. I haven't heard any of using bluegill. Um, but the, the majority of it uses the actual, you know, herbs and plants that were available to us, like bloodroot, ginseng, uh, golden seal, yarrow, uh, goldenrod, and, you know, most things like that, based off of the doctrine of signatures, which is a belief that uh, in creating the world, God left an imprint on every single thing as to its use. So, like, heart-shaped leaves could, you know, help with, you know, heart disorders or love. Um, kidney beans could help with kidney disorders and luck. Um, you know, ciphering out the bad luck from the good luck. Mm. <laughs> So they had like a symbolic function. Yeah, basically in basically in Appalachia, well, most of uh, Southern American folk magic, the ingredients that are used, there, you know, a symbolic meaning behind them can always be found. Whether it's how the herb grows, what the herb's roots look like, uh, what the animal's behavior is, all of it can be, you know, somehow tied or related to the particular work or charm that it's been included in. Um, like some charms, uh, especially those of strength or protection, sometimes included hair from a woman's head, you know, just any any woman. Um, and that was apparently based on the belief, which my papa also subscribed to, that the woman was the strongest thing in nature because, you know, essentially she could bleed for seven days and not die. Um, so that's kind of used to, you know, conjure some of that strength, especially in, like, protection Usually in protection from like uh, you know natural disasters like flood or rain or snow or anything like that. Also, too, you talk about the history and that kind of intermixing of people and the ideas and the superstitions that kind of get carried down from these different people, and how that has become this kind of mishmash of beliefs. Let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah, when the you know all the immigrants came over, um, you know they they were essentially just just as poor as us from the get go. Um, yeah. Just like the Scots Irish, they you know came here looking for you know a better homeland, and they just you know kind of kept that mentality. Basically, all of the you know early immigrants that settled in Appalachia had that mentality of you know independence and stubbornness about them regardless of, you know, nationality, whether they were Irish, Italian, German. Um, and that just kind of like all melded together into uh, like one unified spirit of in independence, which has, you know, that's affected our religion and way of life, the way we cook, the way our, the way we, you know, run our lives, whether it's, you know, taking care of animals or anything like that, simply, you know, with the resources that we have at hand, um, which is one of the primary reasons that a lot of, you know, small town communities that really need the help, um, you know, kind of refuse the help, not simply based on, you know, that spirit of independence, but also based on track, you know, the track record of, you know, outside corporations trying to help them. Because, you know, they'll come in and they'll give good jobs, you know, they'll make mines, they'll make the economy better, and then out of nowhere, they just up and leave. Right. And everybody's just, you know, left with the ruins of it. Yeah, that's, um, a, big, that's a big problem, especially in Appalachia. 
Yeah, so there's always been this, um, I wouldn't say cult mindset, but like a a tight-knit communal mindset mm-hmm. um, where you would, you know, rather trust your neighbor who you know, you know, his granddad has been, was born and raised here. His father was born and raised here. He was born and raised here. And it, we essentially identify, you know, region and place with our character and identity as well. Um, a lot of people here aren't as trustful as of people who are like from, you know, like Arizona or California or anything, any place like that. Um, simply because they're different. Their, their mannerisms are different. And they essentially basically get treated like the like the corporations, like with mistrust. You can't really you know know what to expect with them, as you can you know your neighbor or you know someone down the road. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So that, all that together, tight knit communities. Yeah, and you know even when we had, um, I think I mentioned in the book that you know we didn't start getting actual medical doctors until the early 1900s, but I was wrong about that. It was, you know, the early 1800s where, uh, you know, a lot of doctors started coming in, whether it was Blount County, Washington County, Carter County. Uh, But even then with all the, you know, handful of medical professionals in every town or so, there was still a lot of people who didn't trust, um, you know, the, the Western medicine, because it was fairly new. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we are, we're people of habit. Um, you know, and we like to, you know, stick with the things that we know work. So a lot of the people, you know, continued with their, their herbs and their, uh, you know, tonics and whatnot. Um, so much so that there was a lot of uh, what they call herb men or yarb doctors who would, you know, sell their supplements or anything like that. And because of the, you know, the large mistrust in Appalachia, some doctors actually, um, you know, look to make money on that by, you know, publishing self-help medical books. Hmm. Um, like John, what is it, what is it? John C. Guns, uh, Domestic Medicine, which basically tells you, you know, how to take care of your body until a physician, a physician is absolutely necessary. And those were, you know, widespread just about in every household along with, uh, the, it's a book called The Cherokee Physician or The Indian's Guide to Health. And then locally, there was the uh, a book called The Wright Family Practice because Isaac, Isaac Wright III, I think, um, he was one of the best doctors you know around here. And still today, my mother will trust any doctor or physician whose last name is Wright simply because of that legacy that the family left behind. So it sounds like because of the isolation and the insular nature of the Appalachian people, like you described, this is what actually led to the preservation of all this stuff. Oh, definitely. Because, you know, aside from physicians and, you know, the ever so often outsider help for companies or anything like that Mm -hmm. coming in, we had to rely on ourselves, whether it was medically, uh, you know, physically, spiritually, um, you know, there were a lot of people or communities who had to guide their own spirituality because they didn't really have churches or congregations because they relied on circuit riders who came in, you know, every couple months or so to, you know, do baptisms, marriages, burials, or whatnot. Um, and, you know, aside from the physicians and the large mistrust in the new beginnings of Western medicine, um, it, all of it kind of really stuck to home. 
Yeah. It didn't really, you know, step off the front porch, basically. Well, aside from some of the the ritual kind of magical things being preserved, how, how would you describe the difference in 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 religion of the region? Because you talk about, I guess, the Bible being more than a book and, and it being used as well. And what, what makes Appalachian religion different than, say, Christianity and most of the, the rest of the United States, how it developed? Um, well, there, you know, were, there were, you know, certain communities who kind of developed the, what do you call it? I don't want to call them by the bad name. Then I always called them holy rollers, but I can't remember yeah. what their actual denominations called. Um, they, Char- they, charismatic, kind of more. Yeah, um, theirs is you know a little bit more uh, lenient and esoteric, uh, so to speak. Uh, because they, you know, actually, you know, test their faith, basically. Um, whereas, uh, you know, other churches and congregations simply brought that same spirit of independence in and, you know, basically made a relationship with God on their own, mm-hmm. um, which is also one of the reasons why Catholicism, you know, never really took hold here, because, um, you know, there has to be a, a middle a middle, a middle man, basically. Right. Right. Um, and because of that close relationship that, you know, most individuals built with God, there hasn't always been, um, you know, like a large need to, you know, to profess in public or, you know, anything like that. Like they, you know, protest and do all sorts of stuff now. Um, but, you know, there were, uh, you know, certain churches way back in the day where, you know, they stuck, you know, hard, fast with the rules that the Bible gave. Um, just like the the story of my uh, grandmother, Myra Tipton, where she was basically kicked out of the Baptist church because she was wearing a man's hat. Um, yeah, so yeah there were an interesting churches. story. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, yeah, basically it all depended. Uh, because just, you know, as varied as the people are, everything else is going to be, to be varied, whether it's the way we cook a certain dish the way we pray, aneurysms, uh, manners, anything like that. Well, this leads into a discussion since so we're talking about religion. And I was looking at some of the reviews for your book, and there was one person that had a problem. And I guess that they were looking for like some really hardcore esoteric uh-huh. grimoire or something when you when they when they bought your book but they were they were just really offended by how many Bible verses there are in it. But it's interesting to me, and this came up um, also in like, you know, when I talked to Jack Montgomery not that long ago, just how the Bible is instrumental in this in this belief system, this the system of magic, this kind of root work as well. That it's just the Bible is almost like a divining tool, and very exactly. important, and it's important in powwow too. It's the powwow is based a lot and it has a lot of biblical it talks a lot about the bible very steeped in christianity yeah i'm I'm not sure what they were looking for with the book i, I was i was really confused because it's kind of posted everywhere in the advertisement right so you're familiar yeah, with you're is. familiar with that review then i'm talking about huh oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um but yeah the, the bible is extremely instrumental because you know a lot of the population back in the day they were illiterate so it's it was very powerful to them that they were illiterate 
but they could understand, you know, the literal word of God. Uh, so it kind of took a a strong foothold in the, uh, you know, the community, the society, and the culture. Um, and, you know, a lot of taboos, uh, you know, sprung around the Bible, like you're never supposed to put it on the floor. Um, a lot of people believe that it will survive any natural disaster. Um, and it was even marketed uh, like little... Little pocket Bibles were mar- were marketed back in the day to uh, soldiers, you know, going into World War II, um, based on the belief that worn in the heart pocket, it would stop any bullet. Um, so yeah, you know, the Bible itself has, you know, become many things in the southern region of America, not just Appalachia. It's become a, you know, a charm, uh, you know, a spell book of sorts. Um, but also, you know, it contains family history because back in the day, uh, that was, you know, the majority of books available was the Bible. Right. So the Bible was used to contain, and it's still used to contain, like birth certificates, death certificates, social security numbers, other important papers and documentations of the family needs. And it, it also used to be the only record of, you know, births, marriages, or deaths, um, especially in small knit communities where, you know, there wasn't a an office to issue, you know, birth certificates or death certificates or, or anything like that, um, which is, you know, fairly apparent because uh, there was a lot of, conf- you know, confusion that came about because of that, because of the, you know, the little records that people had of people. Um, like one of my uh, grandmothers, I think on my father's grandmother's side, uh, she died in 1932 but a picture that I found through Ancestry.com, the back of it is noted as 1939, even though her distance says, you know, 1932. Mm-hmm. Um, so while, while it could, you know, possibly lead to, you know, misinformation like that, um, there was still, you know, a, a stronghold in the community. It was uh, a record keeper. It contained the history of a family and sometimes even the history of the whole community. Right, but what what are some of the magical workings that are used with it? And or some particular verses? Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll, I'll tell you that I the, this is very this is a very new thing to me in some ways. Um, I was I was married for a long time to a, to a Brazilian woman, right? And she kind of was in this like the evangelical kind of charismatic tradition down in brazil okay mm-hmm. and she would sometimes she would pick up the bible just randomly open it to something to a word to like a page and she would and i would ask her, what are you what are you doing like how do you read the bible and she would tell me you know i read it uh i just i just opened it to a random page and what i read is what god's trying to tell me and I was like, well, yeah. that's like using it as a divining tool, yeah. you know, because here I am at this point, I'm very kind of staunch, kind of Christian, very much like, you know, the the word is the word. You don't use it as a divining tool. Right. You don't do that. You know, that's not, uh, that's, that's of the devil or whatever, back when I was in that phase of my life. And now I'm kind of look at it and just like, that is, that seems to be what a lot of people have done throughout history is essentially use it as a, as a divining tool. So, like to me, this is just an interesting concept of where you know it's like it is not the people take the Bible seriously, obviously, but it's a tool just like any other tool. Yeah. So yeah, the Bible itself can be used in a lot of works. Um, my my papa and nana used to always keep uh, you know like pictures or items from 
me and the other grandkids at certain verses like Psalms 23 or, you know, other verses that talk about, uh, I can't remember what, what verse it is. I think it's in the book of Matthew, okay. uh, where, you know, Jesus refers to the, the little children as the key to the kingdom of heaven and that you shouldn't rebuke them or, you know, anything like that. Um, so you can, you know, put the, the photo of a, of a person at a certain verse, um, to either heal them, protect them, or even, you know, like curse them if you put their photo, you know, facing the verse upside down. Um, the Bible sometimes used in like measuring rights, which I explained in the book, which is like being the essence, um, or like measuring, uh, like, like an arm or a leg that's afflicted with something to help heal it. Um, but the, you know, it can protect from nightmares if it's placed under the bed. Um, you can put the, you can open the Bible to the uh, chapter of Matthew where, you know, Jesus is born um, for, you know, during labor if a woman's giving birth, and you would place it, uh, depending on, you know, exactly what the risk is, whether the child is at risk, you would put the, lay the Bible open on the stomach. Um, if the mother is at risk, you would lay it open on her chest. <laughs> Interesting. So the, the use of the, you know, the Bible itself as, you know, divination tool, ingredient, um, or simply uh, a pure source of power, you know, varies greatly, um, simply based on, you know, the, the way the Spirit is directing you. Um, because my, my grandmother does the, you know, the bibliomancy with the Bible. She'll just open it at a certain part after asking a question. Yeah. And she yeah. always taught me right. that if you open it to, you know, one of the, either one of the parts, uh, you know, written in red where Jesus is speaking, um, then, you know, whatever you want, it shall come to pass. Or if you open it to a verse that, you know, starts with, and it came to pass, then that's, you know, confirmation that, you know, it will come true or it will happen. Uh, even with just that one simple practice, there's hundreds of different, you know, variations in the South with how you can do divination by the Bible. Some people say you got to take it to a crossroads and let the wind blow the pages until it stops. Um, some say you're supposed to open the Bible and read the verse that is above your right thumb or above your left thumb, or you're supposed to close your eyes and move your finger in a circle and yeah. count to, you know, three, seven, nineteen, and then open your eyes on whatever finger, you know, your whatever verse your finger's on, then that's the that's the answer. Um, so you can see there's a lot of variations, you know, simply by looking at one simple thing that so many people have done that there's so many variations on. Um, there's, you know, there's just a lot of, there's just a lot to it, uh, yeah. you know, more than just, you know, superstitions or tall, or, you know, tall tales, there's actual systems and, you know, theories and methods behind all of it. Yeah. There's this particular specificness about a lot of these rituals, not just to deal with the Bible. It's like, there was one that you talk about in the book where you just like, you got to hold your, you got to hold your toe or something above your head or something like that. It was just something really just awfully specific that you have to do. And then, as you mentioned, too, there's these weird numbers. There's a lot of numerology stuff going on with this. Yeah. Um, numerology was, well, I guess they wouldn't call it, I guess they wouldn't call it numerology, but it is the numerology. Um, you know, the number three would represent, you know, the Holy Spirit. Right. Five for the five wounds of Christ. Uh, growing up, I was always told that uh, seven was God's lucky number. Mm -hmm. Never, you know, found anything about that, but Mom always just told me that that was God's lucky number. And I'd always sit there and question myself, like, why does God need a, need a lucky number? 
in God. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> um, and then, like, the number nine uh, features a lot in some of the works and formulas. Um, as far as I can tell, because nine it relates to uh, a lot of things in the Bible, um, like the nine lepers that Jesus healed, uh, Jesus died in the ninth hour, so it kind of means, uh, you know, completion, it is done. Um, and it's three it's times three. In the book of, yeah, right. that, yeah, that's true. Uh, and I think in the book of Acts, it also mentions that uh, the ninth hour is the hour of prayer. Fascinating stuff. I really, truly, uh, and just, and, and 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 I think just a lot of this stuff just develops slowly over time. It's just something that comes from the old country, I, I, and it and it just no one really knows where it comes from. There's no, but it's just passed down through this oral tradition. Exactly, and I mean you can you know look at the folk traditions of like Italy or Germany or Ireland or Britain and see a lot of similarities. Uh, when comparing it to, you know, Appalachian folk magic or the practices done in the Ozarks. Um, and while they are similar, I still believe that they are, you know, entirely distinct. Um, because, you know, whereas, you know, the, the European, um, you know, roots may have created the, you know, the Appalachian and the Ozark traditions, um, but they're still, to me, entirely different entities, simply because they are shaped by the communities, the societal structures, and just the environment, like I explained in the book. So, ancestor veneration. This idea that you have this connection to your ancestors. And um, I think that this, you do a whole chapter about this, and I think that this is, this is very important, of just knowing where you come from essentially and the the idea of veneration yeah it, it is very important um which I, I was always taught that it was important first and foremost in a family sense um because i was you know i was raised to respect my elders uh, living or dead um because there is you know still a strong belief that uh, the dead can have a particular effect on the living and whether that's good or bad you know depends highly on your actions um, and back in the day when, you know, this work was developing, we didn't have these, um, community graveyards. We had family cemeteries that, you know, were essentially in our front, at our front door. Uh, so if you, you know, disrespected one of your ancestors or, you know, made them upset or neglected them in any way, you would have uh, a quick haunting on your hands. Um, but over time, uh, you know, the different... Um, protections and precautions that, you know, it comes when uh, speaking to the dead or being around the dead has changed since, you know, communal cemeteries. And now, you know, there's people who hold their breath when going past it or they cross their fingers or they refuse to look in the mirrors until they pass three crossroads. Um, there's just a lot of uh, super, a lot of new superstitions that have grown up around uh, ancestor veneration and the, the simple recognition of um, you know, the moving dead, basically, um, that have, you know, just sprung up. Um, now, in regards to ancestor veneration, as far as I've seen, just about every person or, you know, every person I've ever met has, you know, some sort of shrine or something of that sort, you know, already set up in their home without, you know, any, without putting a second thought to it. You know, whether it's a simple wall dedicated to them, 
you know, a dresser, a bookshelf. Um, it, you know, it just contains all of the memorabilia and photographs of the dead. Um, now, with okay. my family, we were always taught that you should never, you know, include photos with the living. Um, otherwise, uh, you or the dead could pine away for each other, and you could also be brought down to the grave. That's creepy. <laughs> yeah, and it's for that reason that, especially like newborn babies, if they were born and died soon after, or if they were simply stillborn, they were always buried face down. Um, so, the, so the baby itself wouldn't pine away for the parents, and then you know the parents would waste away and die. Hmm. Didn't know dark. that. Yeah. <laughs> Never yeah. heard that so before. While, yeah. So while you know they are still our family and our relatives, they're. Because they're in a different realm, they are they are coded. They are wearing a different robe, basically, and with that comes different behaviors and mannerisms, and you know different precautions and vulnerabilities. Um, so you know, I always wear um, you know a hat or a head covering or something like that when I go ever go into the graveyard mm. to prevent anything or you know anyone from you know hopping on my back, so to speak, and following me home. Um, and, you know, even with, even when dealing with your own ancestors, if you do decide to, you know, venerate your ancestors, you do have to remember that there are uh, a lot of times going to be ancestors who have not changed their ways. So, you know, you could be, you know, like a person of color, but one of your ancestors was, you know, a, a union soldier. Um, so calling them up and trying to venerate them would probably not be a good idea. Because there's some there's some cemetery I think it's over in Sevierville um, where it's nothing but Union soldiers and it's always you know recommended to you know people of color you know don't go there that uh, they'll haunt you because you know even just because they're dead doesn't mean they've changed their ways. Do you mean like Confederate soldiers? Yeah. Okay. Oh yeah, okay. Confederate okay. soldiers, not yeah. Union soldiers. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. been a long day. I got you. I got you. I got you. Yeah. I got you. Well, that 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 makes sense. Yeah. So just the, the the these. That's that's interesting. I've never I've never heard that. Do you know where that cemetery is? I think it's in Sevierville, um, or near Sevierville. Yeah, I, I can't remember. Yeah, there could be something um, to all that as well. You know, because East Tennessee was pretty unionist. It, it's been through a lot. <laughs> yeah. That's I mean, the only way to sum it up. It's been through a lot. I mean, East Tennessee could have gone the way of West Virginia. I mean, we could have been, you know, yeah, talking to each other in two different states right now. That's how serious exactly. it could have been. So, I mean, there was a lot of Union sympathy in East Tennessee. So, I, mean, I wonder if there's just like some memory that just still pervades in the people and their attitudes from that time period, or that time period of struggle. Yeah, definitely. Especially during like the Civil War, there was I know here in Jonesboro, um, I can't remember his first name, but he it, it was somebody, some guy named Everett. He ran a like a newsletter or a newspaper or something like that. It was called the Emancipator. It was one of the first um, like uh, one of the first things the uh, abolitionists you know, created to yeah abolitionists yeah. Um, you know uh, slavery. And, and, you know, during further, during further research, um, I found that th there were, you know, some schools in Knoxville and uh, Johnson City and even in Jonesboro, uh, not Knoxville, uh, 
Kingsport, uh, where they actually, you know, were, you know, teaching people of color how to read and everything like that back in the, I think the, sometime in the 1800s before the, um, before the Emancipation Act occurred. So, you know, with that spirit of independence, there's always been that, um, just like, I don't know how to explain it, like, live and let live. Yeah. So there was, there, were, there was a lot of, uh, a lot of objection to slavery in East Tennessee. Oh, yeah, because East Tennessee didn't have any of the huge plantations. Yeah. It wasn't like here yeah. in Nashville where, you know, we have Carton Plantation and a few others that were in this area. You know, the Hermitage is not too far. That was a plantation, too. Middle middle and West were very much more the slavery areas, but when you yeah, go into the, into the hills, into the Appalachians, you know, there's no real slavery in East Tennessee. Yeah, and just like just about every old house in uh, in and around downtown Jonesboro, um, well, so I've heard, have you know like secret tunnels and passageways that were used during the Underground Railroad to yeah. help escaping slaves. Yeah, I can believe it. I can believe it. Just because there was so much sympathy for the Union cause, and well, the irony of it was is that the the East did not, was the last to fall. Like the most of Tennessee fell to the union pretty quickly, but the East, you know, <laughs> it took a couple more years. Yeah. And, um, even though, you know, growing up in Chattanooga, you know, there's an area there where like, you know, the, the union sympathizers blew up bridges and such. And then to, to keep the, the Confederate soldiers from getting the, on their way. And of course you got the general and all that, you know, I showed Sefriel that when we were down, well, that's North Georgia, but, but um, let's let's talk a little bit about some of the rights that uh, did you talk about in the book, and um, I found these particularly interesting, kind of like the transference rights and the transference of disease, and uh, what this means, and also um, what is a power doctor? Uh, power doctor down here is basically like a corruption of the power doctors. Um, okay. So those were you know primarily the ones who. Um, you know, would come and, you know, cure, you know, unnatural illnesses or, you know, simply do faith healing in general. Um, so again, that could be, you know, like a powwow doctor who also utilized, you know, charms and ambulance, but it could have also been, you know, a power doctor who, um, you know, solely believed in the word of God and rebuked all, all of that stuff. Okay. And some of these rights that, uh, the transference rights and the measuring rights and just, we'll describe some of these. Uh, well, I kind of, you know, basically organize them that way because they are, you know, extremely common, um, especially in the uh, curing and diagnosis of disease in Southern Appalachia as well as, you know, the the South in general. Um, so uh, this is a, another rabbit hole. So back in the day, uh, a lot of people, especially, you know, even with the other, uh, like those self-help books that were being published, they believed that, you know, disease originated in a number of ways, whether it was evil spirits, witchcraft, um, bad air, like whether that's night air during a certain season or during a, a certain phase of the moon could make you sick, or, um, you know, odors and uh, smells from like decaying animals, the decaying vegetation or sewers, uh, even even such small things as drastic changes in temperature. So if you go from, you know, being... 
The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. In a house that's like 75 degrees, and then you you know go outside and it's 13 degrees outside, uh, that can change the, the imbalances or the, uh, what are they called, uh, humoral uh, fluxes in the body. It was mm-hmm. kind of like the, the based on the same medical uh, philosophy that the Greeks used. Okay. Basically, like, um, so there was uh, phlegm, black bile, yellow bile, yellow bile, and blood. And once all of these were in balance, then you were in perfect health. But if one of these, you know, fluctuated or got too high or got too low, you could, you know, get pneumonia, you could get migraines, you could get high blood pressure, low, low, low blood pressure, um, bad blood, sweet blood, all, you know, number of different things. They call it uh, the humors. Yeah, it's like the humorous um, philosophy or something like that. Yeah. I can't remember who, you know, like in what Greek philosopher came up with it. Um, that was a huge concept in the Middle Ages, the idea of the humors and the humors that affect the body. And- yeah, and, you know, based on that belief, there were a lot of, you know, uh, what we consider now primitive practices, such as cupping or bloodletting or, mm-hmm. you know, anything like that. But even with all of these, you know, advances coming in on, you know, from what Western medicine, again, we were creatures of habit. So, you know, our minds couldn't really be swayed as to, oh, it's just, um, you know, this this thing, other thing that's causing it, not an evil spirit. Um, so a lot of times, you know, diseases were identified as, you know, demons or evil spirits of that disease who had to be, you know, scared out, purged out, exercised out, or simply transferred, um, meaning that it could be transferred from one person to another or one person to an animal or even one person to an inanimate object, such as like a door frame or a tree. So like if you, uh, if you got your, um, and, and there was also the, the connection that uh, two things that come in contact, stay in contact. So, like, if you got uh, cut or stabbed by a nail, you would have to, you know, grease the nail and keep it clean and keep it somewhere where it can stay dry because there was a belief that if it rusted and, you know, started, you know, getting old, then the wound would, you know, take longer to heal and possibly fester and become infected, which at the time could, you know, be life-threatening. Oh, yeah. Um, And even when fishing, if you, you know, got got a fishing hook stuck in your finger, you were immediately supposed to dry all, dry all of the blood off of it and stick it into a piece of wood because the wood was supposed to, you know, keep it dry and clean. So you would transfer 
you're paying to an to an object and yeah, sometimes somebody what you would transfer to another person is that is that another aspect of this yeah uh such as with uh taking warts off they yeah. would take warts off with uh by taking up uh the same number of stones as warts that you had and they would touch each stone uh to the warts uh three times each and then they would put them in a bag and leave them at a crossroads and the next person to come by and pick up that bag would then get the warts and the warts would leave you and go to them what is it with the crossroads <laughs> Huh? Well, well, I was going to ask you what 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 is with the crossroads. What you say about the Cherokee? Uh, the, the Cherokee also utilized the same form whenever somebody became sick, um, especially after like a, a death in the family or coming back from war. It was believed that spirits of illness were around them, and they needed to be cleansed and purged before they could be, uh, you know, integrated back into society. Um, so, you know, the, the the priest or the the medicine men would take them to the river. And they would give them purgative herbs to, you know, essentially vomit up and cleanse their system. And at the same time, the medicine man would be, you know, speaking with the, the river or who they called the long man, praying him to take the disease or the illness away to a people far away. Uh, because the Cherokee, you know, realized that nothing can be created nor destroyed, simply moved from one place to another. Hmm. So they would, you know, pray for that disease to go to another people, to another tribe. And it would essentially, you know, get passed around like hot potato. Yeah, we don't want it. We don't want it here. <laughs> <laughs> what is it with the crossroads? This comes up again and again. And, of course, you know, when I think of the crossroads, I think of, you know, Robert Johnson, the blues man, the deal with the devil, these type of things that are more like in the Mid-South, you know, mythology and folklore and the black dogs. Oh, yeah, we have way too many stories about the devil here. Yeah, <laughs> Way sure. too many. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, as, as far as I can tell, it's both... Um, it, it's kind of like equal as to European belief as well as African belief, and that the crossroads are a place between, um, whether it's a place between the living and the dead or, you know, health and sickness or, um, you know, anything like that. <laughs> And, uh, you know, it became uh, basically a portal to, you know, selling your soul or meeting the devil and making a trade for, um, you know, some kind of talent, whether it was musical, writing, um, you know, anything of that nature. How is the devil depicted sometimes in Appalachia? Um, well, that's actually a weird phenomenon in Appalachia because, it, uh, again, it simply depends on... Uh, you know, the community and the, the history behind them. Um, because some, some people based on the superstitions and stuff that they have about the devil, um, he's, you know, uh, he's no longer, you know, the father of lies or the king of evil that the Bible portrays him as, but simply a trickster spirit or, and especially, a, you know, a spirit that can be out tricked just like in, you know, all of the Southern Jack tale. Devil went down to Georgia. Yeah. Um, or, you know, just the, the story about the, um, like the creation of the jack-o'-lantern, um, which basically states that, like, uh, Jack was like a mean old drunk, and uh, he was, you know, walking home one night, and he saw a, I guess he thought it was like a homeless man, and he invited him to, you know, come in and, you know, get his belly full and go to sleep. Um, and then that's when, you know, he realized it was the devil come to take his soul. So then he would bargain with the devil, um, 
such as uh, what was one part of the story? Um, you, you something like you can't take my my soul until after I've eaten this whole bushel of ap- apples. So uh, him and Devil climb up in the apple tree together, and Jack's eating the bushels or whatnot. And then when the devil's not looking, Jack de- Jack jumps down and you know takes out his pocket knife and he carves a cross into the tree, basically making it to where the devil is stuck. And he tells the devil that he won't let him go until the devil gives him 10 more years. Well, he keeps doing that, you know, tricking him and getting him stuck to where he can't, you know, go nowhere until, you know, Jack actually dies. And then once he dies, he's denied at the, you know, the gates of heaven for obvious reasons. But then when he gets to the gates of hell, he's also denied by the devil. Um, So he was basically cursed to, you know, wander the earth. Uh, for eternity because, you know, there was nowhere else to go. Um, but the devil had pity on him and threw him one of the hot coals from hell's burning fire. And so Jack took that coal and he carved out a turnip and he put the, the coal in the turnip. And that's the, the turnip that he uses now to, you know, guide his way for eternity. There's an interesting concepts there and it goes along with the crossroads of just the idea of liminality, the space in between. Mm-hmm. And the, the character in that story ends up in this space between heaven and hell a liminal space where supernatural supernatural things abound <laughs> in liminal yeah, spaces I think, the, I think you know most of the um you know the bad ideas surrounding the crossroads comes you know from the european belief of selling your soul to the devil at the crossroads as well as the uh you know the remaining uh you know, idea that it was only criminals and thieves and people who didn't have no one who were actually buried at the crossroads. Yeah. Um, so I think that, you know, the use of today's crossroads is kind of like a, uh, a remnant belief from using the, you know, essentially the graveyard of the damned and the sinners. Mm. Whose essential gatekeeper was also the devil himself. Let's talk about some of the spirits that you talk about, and you talk about the little people in in the book. Um, there's some interesting stories about the little people because I don't know if you're familiar with the missing four one one material, the David Politis stuff, but some of it really reflects it. Um, not being in last in line or not looking behind and being taken by the little people. There's a lot of this mm-hmm. in Cherokee folklore. Um, one that struck me in the book was the forever boy. Yeah. So let's talk about some of this, these concepts that Cherokee had about the little people. Um, well, it's, it's kind of like, um, uh, it's kind of like a paradox because, uh, just like with, uh, one of the little people that I talked about, they that, um, he's, you know, in the stories, it's said that, uh, you know, mothers used to threaten their children with, uh, you know, Dejas is going to get you if you don't, you know, be quiet. And then that would, you know, kind of offend the spirit and he would, you know, send disease on the parents or the child. Um, so the, it's kind of like a paradox whether, you know, that was acceptable or like, when did that start? When was it not acceptable? Um, and then there's other stories. Uh, I believe it's that one book about the Trail of Tears. I think I still have it. I'm not giving away, um, you know, where it's uh, that the writer or the author identifies that they're uh, 
their mother used to speak with the little people when she was young and that uh, the little people would carry you away to the uh, to the nightlands when you you know passed away or died um so their roles in Cherokee culture you know kind of changed and swift from you know tricks or spirits to helpers and healers to um you know actually uh little tiny grim reapers little tiny grim reapers <laughs> <laughs> little tiny grim reapers yeah there's a lot of um similarity to fairy lore in some of that uh, some of that Cherokee mythology that I think that I think is very interesting yeah it is just like you know you know modern Appalachia it's very you know varied and colorful in its mythology and stories and practice yeah are you familiar with that uh, David Politis and the missing 411 stuff and, and about people going missing in the in the, in the national parks especially like in uh, the Great Smoky Mountains there's a lot of cases there that are just odd yeah, I think I've I've read uh, a book on it, you know, specifically about the Great Smoky Mountains, but I can't. That was years ago. That's yeah. all I've really, you know, looked into that. Yeah, it, it's um, yeah, it makes you really wonder about some of this mythology and whether like the the Cherokees experience this type of thing themselves and these encounters with these beings and the other. Um, you also talk about um in the spirits. Uh, section about luna moths and dogs and some of the symbology associated with them. Yeah, just like uh, with that, you know, close relationship with nature and the relationship with God, um, nature kind of became the natural, uh, you know, canvas for which the spirit the spirit speaks through. So, luna moth has always been, uh, you know, regarded as a sacred animal. Uh, with the belief that it, uh, you know, carries messages from the dead. And the same was with the, the, the Cherokee people as well, <laughs> uh, especially with, like, albino animals, like an albino deer. Um, they identified the albino deer as little deer, or who, who was the chief of the deer clan, you know, the, the, all of the deer in the forest, um, as well as, you know, like white dogs, which kind of, you know, parallels with the, the European um, superstitions about black dogs and, you know, devil dogs haunting graves or, um, I think it's called the Grim where it was like a, the, the first dog buried was the, you know, the guardian of the cemetery or the graveyard. Okay. So yeah, just like with the, the beliefs surrounding our ancestors and the, the dead, um, animals and nature kind of had, uh, that same interplay as being, you know, whether messages or signs or omens, um, you know, from the other side. And the Luna Moths. Yeah, just like the Luna Moths being, you know, messages from the dead. And they, they have a specific, so they're more, you know, this association with the dead. That both both yeah. deer, dogs, Luna Moths, they have a, this association. Yeah, well, the, the black dogs more specifically, you know, have an association with death itself. Yeah. Because um, there's always a superstition that if you see a, you know, a white phantom dog or a black dog um, who's just, you know, sitting in the yard looking at the house and it won't leave, it's because it's waiting for its owner, you know, death to, uh-huh. you know, arrive. Ooh. <laughs> Yeah, Do I, yeah anybody black, you know have any, always gives me chills. Have anybody you know ever had any experience like that? Seen the dog out there waiting? Uh, yeah. Um, I, this actually just happened a couple of months ago. Really? Um, one of my mother's neighbors lives like right, like down the street. 
like six or seven houses. She was walking her dog, who so happened to be white, um, and it somehow got off of its leash and ran straight up because the, uh, the apartment or housing that my mother lives in, it's two apartments per building. Um, it, it's, it's essentially government housing. Um, so it ran up to um, one of the neighbor's doorsteps, and it would not move. She tried for about 30 minutes to get that dog off of, you know, off of the person's porch. And then I, I want to say it was, you know, two weeks, maybe a month later, um, there, there was an ambulance outside. And I, I don't know if they ever passed or whatever, because, you know, a lot of the old people out there don't really come outside. Um, so we haven't, we haven't seen the old woman, so we're not sure, you know, what happened. If that, you know, was the, you know, reacting of one of those superstitions or not. So it doesn't necessarily have to be like this spectral dog. It can be like a real dog, like a familiar dog, but it'll just, for some reason, go stand on somebody's doorstep and look at them. Yeah, basically. Huh. What about owls? Is there anything with owls? The only thing that I've ever found about owls, um, that one is, again, a paradox, because one old um, like love potion or whatever is made using owl feathers, um, whereas generally owls are re- regarded as an omen of death. So if an owl was, you know, sitting on top of the house hooting, uh, you know, uh, they would, you know, take all of their shoes off and turn them inside out, uh, take two pieces of iron and cross them in the fire or, you know, the fireplace or anything like that to chase the owl away and get it to stop hooting. Um, and then there's, there was one, uh, which was supposed to break the bird's neck. I think it was tying a, uh, a knot in the corner of your apron or something of that nature. I can't remember exactly what was supposed to be done, but it was supposed to break the bird's neck. Haints. Now, I've heard this word probably most of my life. What is a haint? Because I think it has, a, like, I've always thought it, it, it came from the word haunt, but I think that it's mm-hmm. a little, the, the etymology is a little different. Yeah, so in, in Appalachia, Hank can, you know, be anything from, uh, you know, just a simple eventual spirit, like an ancestral spirit, um, uh, an ancestor who, uh, you know, did, they didn't really live a good life, but they are affecting you in physical manners, uh, whether conscious or unconscious, cautious, um, or it could simply be, you know, demons, uh, the little folk, or, you know, simply uh, a disease spirit that's, uh, you know, essentially haunting you in some form or manner. Are there there ways to get rid of them? And isn't there something about, like, the blue windows or, like, the the blue window panes to keep them away? Yeah, the the blue is supposed to conjure up, uh, you know, in the the spirit's mind, um, you know, uh, recollections of of the sky during the daytime. Mm. Um, or, you know, even of the, of the oceans or, you know, running water, because uh, evil spirits can't, can't cross running water and their rain isn't necessarily in the daytime, more so at the nighttime, because that's when the, the conditions for them to appear and act are, you know, uh, better than it is in the daytime. So that's why uh, a lot of people would, you know, paint their doors or their porches or, you know, just the, the front porch ceiling uh, paint blue to help keep them out and to tear them. Now, of course, it was never, you know, 100% preventive because nothing is. Um, But, you know, if a Hank got in, then depending on the actual circumstance, whether it is attached to a person or it's attached to an item that was brought into the house, 
or you know if it's simply um you know just 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 a demon of sorts um there's different things that can be done to you know get rid of it again you know based on exactly what it is um so you know you could take it like a like a cleansing bath um some people would go to like the actual altars in the churches and pray uh for a you know a certain number of days um they would burn sulfur asphidity uh take tablespoons of castor oil and turpentine all sorts of different things to help um like not only purge it from you know being attached to their body but also to the house as well so they would you know wash the floors the front steps the back steps the walls and sometimes even the ceiling have you ever had to get rid of one um there was one time when i was uh younger uh, a friend was needing i can't remember some kind of charm uh but it called for graveyard dirt and of course you know i couldn't drive at the time and my, my mom was at work hmm. um so one of my other friends who was able to drive uh they, they went and got the graveyard dirt but they forgot you know the instructions that i had given them so they just you know grabbed a big handful of graveyard dirt from you know just any old grave uh, and then after that, because uh, so, Mama always had the, the doors and windows salted. Um, and the way we salted them, because we had, um, Lord, how many cats did we have at the time? I think we had two or three grown cats and then about nine kits. Um, so we didn't want them, you know, getting in the getting in the windows and, you know, breaking the salt line or anything. Yeah. So Mama would always, uh, she would always wait until it was a little bit chilly outside and really warm in the house. So there was good condensation on the windows and then she would, you know, lay the salt line and then she would, uh, take one of the, uh, what do you call them? It's like those blue dropper things, the big rubber ones. And she would take that and she would just drip a, just a little bit of water, uh, going along down the line, just enough to moisten the salt and basically to solidify to itself as well as to the window paint. So, you know, once it dried, it was essentially, you know, solid as a rock. And then she would, you know, uh, take a like a razor or something and chip it off any time that the salt began turning brown or, you know, any color that it wasn't supposed to be except for white. And then she would, you know, relay the line. Hmm. Did it get rid of it? Well, I, I got rid of it when the – because it, it started happening not in the house but outside of the house because we would always see this old woman – uh, with glasses at the tip of her nose, and she would be, you know, beckoning, you know, come here. Um, so finally, I just, you know, because I the, the graveyard that my friend went to was way in North Carolina, and I couldn't, you know, get back out there, so I took it out to the woods and gave offerings of, you know, tobacco and cornmeal, and after that, it was done. So, you know, she had just been, you know, disturbed, and she, you know, wasn't understanding why. Yeah, you talk a lot about that, actually, in the book about you know the the giving offerings to spirits or to dead animal to the spirits of dead animals and all this giving the offerings of food or tobacco or any of that we what's the can, what do you think the significance of that is or the purpose of that is really i think it's i, I don't really think it you know originates in you know any certain practice or region or country uh, because it's exemplified all over the world. So I think it's simply a human, just kind of like a human habit. 
um, especially when it comes to venerating the dead, because no matter where you look, offerings are always given to the dead, whether it's fresh fruits, um, liquors, uh, you know, tobacco, cornmeal, whatever it may be. It's some kind of basically like a gift from one world to another. Um, because, you know, no, nobody wants to be forgotten. Nobody wants to, you know, eh, you know, know that they have been forgotten. And that's also, you know, exemplified in, you know, Mexican culture where they believe that there's actually three deaths. Um, you know, first you die, and then the second time, um, what is it? It's you, the first time you die, and, like, uh, the first time you die is when you realize your your mortality, that you will one day die. And then the second uh, time you die is when you actually die. But then the third time that you die is when you are last remembered, like the last time that you you were ever remembered by the living. Mm. When the last person that remembers you dies, you completely die. Yeah, when you're, you wow. know, your story is no longer yeah. continuing. Wow. So yeah, I think it is you know purely a a, a human characteristic and not necessarily a, a characteristic of a particular people or yeah. place or region. Yeah. Root magic. What? How do you define that? Um, like like root working, correct? Yeah, root working. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, it's. Uh, I think it's really. Uh, it, it really stems from you know a bunch of the cultures that that came here. Because uh, you you know the the Italians they used garlic to ward off evil, um, just like all the other cultures, whether it was Irish or you know African or you know even the Cherokee, because the Cherokee used you know roots and herbs for uh, healing, winning ball games, for love work. Um, so there's always been kind of like this belief that uh, again with the doctrine of, of of signatures that everything contains a certain power. Um, you know, ordained to it by God or by the Great Spirit, depending on, you know, who you talk to, um, that it can have, you know, some kind of particular or, uh, you know, some kind of particular change uh, in, in the course of one's life or, you know, changing the events or, you know, even changing the minds of people. So you do that to, in a way to affect a change, essentially, and work, do the, like these magical rituals using this material. Yeah, basically. And, you know, even with my family, um, you know, because Jesus healed the blind man with mud and spit, he could have simply used his spit, but he also used mud for some reason. Um, you know, the priests, they cured the lepers with hyssop and I think cedar and, you know, a bunch of other herbs. And then, you know, there's uh, anointing oil recipes that call for myrrh and frankincense and all sorts of different things. Um, so, Roots and herbs have always been used for, uh, you know, spiritual purposes as well as medicinal purposes, um, you know, based on that belief that, you know, it can affect some kind of change, whether it's a, a change in consciousness, a change in the, um, you know, the healing of the body or simply, you know, the healing of the spirit in any kind. Very interesting stuff, Jake. Man, how did you, uh, you know, before we let you go, man, how did you come to write this book? I mean, how did you, how did this, I mean, how did this come about? How have the sales been? How's the response been to this book? 
overall, um, except for you know those couple of bad, uh, <laughs> right, <laughs> ill-informed re- reviews, uh, it's it's been really good. Um, the the sales have mostly been in you know the Appalachian region, which is you know where I was aiming at. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so hopefully it will help restore, um, you know that knowledge to, the, you know that knowledge to the ones that. Uh, that it's been lost from, whether it was where it wasn't handed down, or you know, to somebody who wish who wishes now that they would have listened more, um, to kind of you know return it back to the people. All right. Well, that's that's cool. I'm really looking forward to reading it. Uh, Adam's already read it. Um, I did have one last question though, as like kind of a side note. How was um the the growth and evolution of of modern day evangelical Christianity has it impacted some of these old beliefs? Have they, you know, come trying to convert people and get people to leave these these old practices and beliefs behind? Um, yeah, just like with the uh, you know the local churches who are you know um, hardcore and you know strict by the rules, they do sometimes persuade people to you know leave behind their superstition. The superstition opens the door to the devil. Right. Um, but I think the majority of their of their reach here is simply you know through television. Because uh-huh. um, I I don't think you know if they came here in uh, you know large groups to you know try and persuade or convert or you know do any of that. I I think they would be you know ran out of town just like they've been just like the uh, <laughs> Westboro Baptist Church has been running out of every right. down here. Well, that's real interesting. Man. I, again, because of that, you know, that spirit of independence and mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, that uh, that habit with the familiar. Um, you know, essentially, you know, what I do in, behind closed doors is between me and God. Yeah, yeah. And you know, if it works, then you know, there's no point in you know abandoning it. And if it's not broken, don't fix it. Well, it seems like that all this is very integrated. That's the thing. It's like you know, it's it's so much based in the Bible and using the Bible as a tool, and it's just a it's 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 this part of Christianity that isn't spoken about. This like folk Christian belief that's just not spoken about by the mainstream, but has always been there. Yeah, but it's and, always been there. Yeah, and in our culture where it's so integrated, um, you know, most of most of the response that I've had to the book is you know, I had no idea, or I, you know, this, you know, uh, brings an explanation to what my grandmother did, or my grandfather did, or, you know, what my great uncle did. Um, so, you know, it was just accepted as, you know, uh, the normal weird, per se. So it wasn't really, you know, thought of, or like, you know, what the hell are they doing? Um, it was just, you know, either part of the family or, you know, a part of the culture. So it wasn't really questioned, and, you know, no second thought was put to it. When your grandfather started showing you all this, how old were you? Um, well, the, the, really, the only things that he shared with me because I was I was real young when he died. I was about seven, maybe. Um, I, I knew I knew about the you know the Bible verse and the taking off warts and um, you know stopping blood with the Bible verse and stuff. Um, but the rest of it, I've kind of you know gathered on my own, whether you know from my mother or from my grandmother as I've gotten older. And you kind of you said you got started like uh, ten years ago. Yeah, when I was about, I want to say ten or eleven. That's that's really cool how you're chronicling this stuff and and preserving it. 
um yeah i just really hand it to you i think it's a really good job a lot more people need to need to do that so that these things can be preserved absolutely uh jake please tell us man where can people find the book and uh what's next for you is there another book in the future uh yeah they can find the book on uh you know amazon barnes and noble usually your local barnes and noble as well as indiebound.com um and yeah i am currently working on the second book um which will delve further into uh you know the you know the actual people that did this work into you know, what degrees of the practice and, you know, everything of that nature. Uh, nice. But yeah, they can find it, uh, you know, generally on Amazon and, you know, places like that. Okay. Well, cool. We're, uh, stay on the line for us, Jake. We're, thank you so much. This has been awesome. Uh, stay on the line for us. We're going to close out this section. And guys, we'll be back out to, as I always say, close out the show on Conspiranormal. If you want your HR team to hire top talent for your company, tell them about ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology identifies people with the right skills, education, and experience and actively invites them to apply to your company's job posts so you get qualified candidates fast. It's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. This rating comes from hiring sites on Trustpilot with over 1,000 reviews. And right now, you can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Conspiranormal. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Conspiranormal. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Another great interview, man. I was that was that was really impressive, dude. I am I really enjoyed that one, and uh, like that's kind of like a personal taste there for us because you know we're, yeah, we're from this you. area. Yeah, I'm from yeah I'm from East Tennessee, so just kind of barely from East Tennessee. But yeah, I mean for me that's uh, just like little things that you see growing up, and you're just like, oh, I wonder why that was, and then you kind of re- I read his book, and I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Didn't know that putting it together way later well and he said it's having that effect on a lot of a lot of people who had this in their family you didn't really know what it was about and now they really get to tie it together right right yeah i mean he's he's a wealth of knowledge on this stuff and it, dude's young he's like what, what did he say he was 22 yeah something like that and already written a book yeah I mean, like, we're slacking <laughs> yeah we're bullshitting dude. <laughs> that's that's what's going on uh just a few thoughts that i had man um that had to do with this interview and the previous interview with alan stevelman which we actually did both on the same day so it's all really fresh in my mind but i thought there were some interesting parallels and i i I talked to jake about this a little bit and we may hear that in like the patreon part that we'll we'll put up the very short patreon part that we did um but there's some parallels between this and like what Alan was telling telling us about Juan Perez and his experience and him getting in touch with the, the ancestors, the Guarani. Mm-hmm. And um, Jake says that he got started right like when he was about 10 or 11. Um, Alan, Alan tells us that Juan has this experience that, that he had in Argentina at 12. Yeah. Um, so learning these different things and getting back in touch with the ancestors and being a part of a community and the shamanic experience, it all kind of fits in together. And also having these weird, whether it's ghosts or UFOs or whatever, what have you, these weird experiences are an essential part of all this. Yeah. Well, it's what people have always done. Right. We're the exception now. You know, people who don't do this are the exception. Right. 
There was a couple other things, too, um, that um, Jake mentioned that I thought were fascinating. And this idea that our good friend Josh Cutchin talks about, the idea of the links between fairy lore and the dead. Yeah. Um, well, you've got dogs symbolizing death, Luna moths symbolizing death. Um, what was it? Like owls symbolize death. All these are creatures that you're seeing coming up in these cryptid sightings, too, right? I mean, Mike Cullen's owl stuff, that material, the screen memories, um, quote-unquote moth man, uh, dog man. Yeah. You know, all these things that are just in this liminal space and these, these creatures that are not physically real and then this association with death with fairy lore and the dead and what you know alan told us about you know juan juan perez having this experience and then his grandfather showing up in the middle of it which is a common motif in contact experiences yeah that that's a huge connection to me uh because that i think this interview and the interview that we did before in the last episode really in some ways came together am i making any sense yeah, yeah. What this, uh, this all what this revolves means. around the other world, and and all of these phenomenons revolve around the other world and around the you know transfer from life to death. Right, right, right. And which and, is the great you know that is the ultimate yeah, other. Yeah, and and Josh has told me before that maybe we're just dealing with like a huge one huge ghost story. Yeah, why not? That's what it is. Yeah, it's just we are that all this is just a contact from another another world, another. Yeah. Realm. And maybe from where we all go. Yeah. I think next time we're going to have a roundtable with a few guests. And uh, when we get to that, I think I'm going to throw out that question to those guys. See what they what they can run with and what they can do with that. Because I want to kind of like formulate this a little more in my head about mm-hmm. what about what all that means. Um, but yeah, man, fascinating stuff fascinating stuff um, absolutely that was really cool jake i think has a lot more stories than he's telling us oh yeah and to have been to be in so much touch with this at such a young age and to be considered you know basically the dude's a shaman yeah he's he's a professional yeah he's a professional at it he you know this is what he does he's written like i said he's written a book about it you know and uh we we invited him to strange realities 2020 officially so we'll see if that uh if that comes about, but, uh, yeah, pretty impressed, man. Uh, anything else that we want to add about, uh, this interview, anything, any impressions that you had in particular? No, it was just, it was just really interesting, um, to see someone so young really realizing how important it is to chronicle and preserve all these traditions. And hopefully we're going to be seeing more of that. I think a lot of that I might so. be going on with this kind of resurgence and interest yeah, in folk magic. I think so. Um, one of the things that I went to as I was, we were trying to do the flyers for the Strange Realities Conference was I went to this folk magic festival. It was put on by this place. I'll, I'll give them a shout out because they're good people. Uh, by this place here in Nashville called Aroma G. And uh, they're basically kind of like the, the, this one of these shops that are springing up everywhere where they have all these um, statues of saints. A botanica. A botanica. Different, different religious traditions, you know, scented, you know, magical candles and stuff like some of the stuff that you got over here, Mr. Easy Street. You know, they, they've got 
that kind of that kind of material there and it's you know also also a bookstore with a lot of stuff from a lot of different kind of either new age or occult traditions and, mm-hmm. and such and such and i went to this thing and heather actually joined me there for a little bit and uh you know i just asked her i was just like you know so many of the people here are women yeah like women are very very fascinated by this yeah we've been talking about that yeah and it's like it's like and I, and I was like, "Is this gonna, like is this a new aspect of feminism? You know, what is this?" And I just think it's just like you know, people getting in touch with the roots, getting in touch with 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 what they've uh, with what they they see as their you know trying to get back in the touch with their past or their culture, I'm just trying to ground themselves. Yeah, trying to ground themselves in something. as the world gets more and more, you know, crazy, more more and more uh, further away from right the roots and spirituality and more materialist and technological, you know, we're having, I think it's a similar type of spiritual crisis, like what we had with the industrial revolution, you know? Yes. Yeah. Yep. And it's it become more and more and people are more and more isolated from each other, I think because of the internet. Yeah. You know, it hasn't really been something that's brought us together very much, but, um, I did get into this conversation, you know, with this, with this lady there and we talked for a little bit, um, talked about, herself as a christian and but still wanting to practice this this ancient form of folkloric magic essentially and you know there's there's that kind of like cognitive dissonance there but it's like all this stuff is just kind of integrated well but think about how old it all is and you know right. a, a non-syncretic christianity is is really a, a it's probably a lot more of a modern invention you know, than what was the norm for exactly. a long time. Exactly. I've been, I've been, I mean, in the past I've been pretty critical of syncretism, but you know, now you see that just like this the, syncretism almost has become a necessity because you just can't, there's no way that you could really, well, and especially you, most of the time people were forced at like the point of a sword to convert or because the ruler right. converted. And so you just said, okay, you're Christian now, but those beliefs never went away. Yeah. They're still around. Well, and especially because of, I mean, just the fact of the, the origins of a lot of these like Middle Eastern Abrahamic religions were pretty abstract to a lot of you know, they were abstract to a lot of Europeans, I'm sure. And then they're very abstract as the Europeans spread it around the world. So, yeah. you know, it's there has to be some local material to try to integrate it with. Right. And, you know, pagan, that, that has that kind of connotation because of the idea of witchcraft or, yeah. or you know, even like, you know, you would get into like heavy metal or pagan, man, I'm pagan. But it's like all pagan meant in the ancient world was the common people or and farmers. More, yeah. Rural that's people, what it peasants. meant. That's exactly what it meant because those are people that practice these old ideas, these old folklore, folkloric magic, you quote unquote witchcraft. All these things were practiced in the ancient world. And then, you know, Christianity comes in and says, okay, well, you're Christian now, you know, but those people, they, 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 they kept all that, all that has been kept. And then it, Christianity kind of started having this, this veneer on top of that. So this is where you get these traditions like powwow, for instance, that is actually steeped in kind of Catholicism. And then what the stuff we just talked about with Jake, how the Bible is used as a divining rod. And you got to remember too, like the Bible, essentially that's all people had. Maybe you had like the books of Shakespeare, 
but the one book in the house for most people for quite a few centuries in this country and in Europe was the Bible. I thought that's That's especially fascinating tonight. Yeah. Uh, that Bible, the Bible magic stuff. Right. Yeah. There's, yeah, there's a lot to that for sure. And just like you coming up with all the different, you got to open it and spin around and you know, where you land is and where you, placement is where of, it tells you where it is. Yeah. The placement of pictures yeah. and it's, that's really fascinating. But like I said, you know, that's also a tradition that I've known because of my, my, exposure to brazilians too like that's something they do so that's a thing in not just in north america and our tradition but you know in other countries as well you know so this this stuff is old and it's and it, it doesn't go away and i don't think it's anything to be to be fearful of necessarily um it just kind of is there and it's always going to be there it's never gonna it's like i said it's never gonna go away but those are kind of the thoughts that I had on it Um, All right, Uh, I think that's it man I think we're going to close it Serfiel tell everybody where they can find our Patreon if they want to join up and be part of our little cult we got going on right and the uh, it looks like there's going to be a lot of material on the Patreon coming up you know there may be some opportunities to uh, be exposed some of the the recordings from strange realities if you didn't get to make it or if you did make it and you want to relive some of that and listen to some of the lectures again um so it's it's definitely a great time to become a patron go to patreon.com slash conspiranormal or make a one-time donation on conspiranormal.com uh conspiranormal.com is a good place to go to uh access the new episodes get a little rundown little blogs on what's what's going on with the episodes and we're gonna be trying to share more information on there as well Okay, and also don't forget, guys, Conspiracy Normal Podcast on YouTube. You can find that there. Please give us a subscription so we can get to a thousand. So we don't know. You know this was two weeks from the day we're recording it, so maybe we'll get to there by then. I can only hope. And then you can help us pray to the algorithmic lords. That's right. Yeah, to our AI AI overlords, and also leave a good review on iTunes. That really helps us out as well. Leave us a nice five-star review. You can't do a six. I know it's disappointing, but uh, okay. Well, that's it, guys. We will be back next time. We're going to do another roundtable on Conspiranormal.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.